Hello, I'm Christopher Wood, chair of the German department at NYU, and I'm here simply to introduce my colleague, an individual who needs no introduction, university professor at New York University, Avital Ronell. Among her recent publications, I'll name only the book Loser Sons, Politics and Authority. Please join me in welcoming Avital Ronell. Losers. Losers. Sons. Loser, like those who are losers. Yeah. Like Trump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, everyone. And so, to, to say, to put it in this LGBT way, and every day. So that it's not only he and she. Sorry, no, not interrupt you again. Don't start with me. <laughs> so we intentionally scheduled this event for tonight, but certainly not with the um, understanding that we would be, in some sense, intellectual or intellectually appointed and called um, first responders. Something happened to us all that might be designated in the terms outlined by Blanchot as a disclosure. Most of us um, are still reverberating and shaking or shaken down with a sense of, of despair and horror, but some, and, and mostly with a sense also of, of mute shock. I'm, I, I, it took me a while to get off the mute button myself, but I'd like you to consider the experience or inexperience to the extent that we, can you stop that noise? Um, to the extent that um, we, something happened on the order of an event which we might not be able to appropriate, um, but what would that disclosure be? What was disclosed? What will have been disclosed? What what would the pressure and weight of the disclosure be? It would be something like a nihilistic buildup. A lot of us have been reading up on nihilism. And a major attack on democracy. Um, we, we didn't expect, some of us, the resentimental fervor with which um, Hillary would be slammed. And I would like to urge that we think about and discuss together um, at some point the, the trope discovered by Nietzsche, that of ressentiment, a resentment that motors history, according to uh, Nietzsche. So a lot of you are feeling fragile. We, we have a lot of fragility, or what our friend Judith Butler calls a uh, precariousness that probably is deepening and intensifying. We have a lot to talk about, a lot to think about, ever since at least Adorno marked these F factors, meaning fascistoid factors that he saw all over, distributed all over um, America, already damals. So one wants to consider... Um, the disappearance of authority, already signaled by Kojev and Arendt, and it, what it means to have an authoritarian thing, or unding, an unthing, 
that is perched on the disappearance and loss of authority. This I can't say more about, but I'd love to if, if you insist. So um, at another... So fast-forwarding, even though our mourning process has barely begun, um, let me urge you not to introject the wounding insults that you've been served consciously or unconsciously according to a logic that's all too clear or even subterranean and still moving toward you. Let us size together the rhetorical damage, the weaponizing of language, the um, destruction of our great-great-cousins, friends, families, and other tropologies of intimacy, Muslims, women, people of color, and everyone who's being um, undermined and beaten down right now. So I'm wondering if, if this is not game-changing for my friend Slavoj in some ways, because this is... Um, there's so much to consider and what kind of pushbacks and paybacks are being distributed right now. Don't forget that Comey was kind of after Bill Clinton, who pardoned an Israeli spy. I don't know if you remember that episode. There's a lot of history going back and forth that we might want to consider together as we try to clear some abysses uh, with the understanding that we're now groundless. We always were, but now some disclosure has, um, in a way, manifested itself. (coughs) So um, I have uh, so much to say to you to ask you to kind of protect yourselves the way we protect the question here. And don't kid yourself. The university and learning will be, is already a target of opportunity for the new regimens. Um, We now compete with Trump University, among other institutional um, mutations. But there will also be social aggressions that come from outfield or left or right. And um, just, just let's try to protect each other, one another, and ourselves. With that in mind, and your anti-ballistic um, shields up and ready, I introduce my friend and colleague, and pain in the ass on so many levels, <laughs> Slavoj Žižek. You. Okay. <laughs> Will you stand there and just control me, or okay. only uh, we don't play those games anymore, honey? Okay. <laughs> I'm done. Uh, Thank you. Uh, okay. These are your New York place. I don't get them. What this means? I just want to warn you. The the lecture will not be exactly what the title promises. I will skip the racial enjoyments. You will not lose any great thing, but it will be clear why. Because I nonetheless want to focus on the obvious thing. It's kind of expected, what you were focusing on, what these elections mean, and so on and so on. Maybe some of you have read 
my piece, which appeared uh, only on the online version of Indish Times, this will be said for you because I will repeat some of the parts. Uh, my position is here extremely unorthodox. I'm getting hate mail. I was physically threatened and so on. And as to all those guys from the left who accuse me of being, I'm already now a new fascist. Finally, my masks have fallen down. <laughs> Where? All I can tell you is that, I don't know if you noticed this, how it's more and more difficult for me to publish here and in the United Kingdom. First, I was able five, ten years ago to publish from time to time a, a co-ed in New York Times. That's out. Then it was in, uh, in Newsweek, but only online. It's, it's out. Now, even my good friends in English Times only allow me from time to time on their, um, on the, how do you call it, digital version. Not there. In England, it's even worse. I'm now totally prohibited by Guardian, by uh, uh, London Review of Books, by New Left Review, and so on and so on. So, what should I say? That if I'm a fascist, then it's very difficult to be a fascist these days or whatever. <laughs> so let me say that I will, with best intentions, but consciously, let's say, provoke you. I am convinced about what I am saying. It's not just an empty provocation. And I know this is part of a more general way my theories, claims are problematized. And I want maybe to begin with that. Namely, I would like to begin with a well-known statement, you must all know it, by Edward Bond. If you can't face Hiroshima in the theater, you'll eventually end up in Hiroshima itself. I think that this statement provides the best argument against those who oppose what they dismiss as graphic descriptions of sexual violence and other atrocities. Uh, they dismiss them as, that's the claim, participating in the same violence these descriptions pretend to critically analyze and reject. Like, if you, for example, uh, de describe violence, atrocities against women, you run, you're walking on a very thin ice because soon people will say, but wait a minute, your description itself repeats the very act you pretend to criticize and so on and so on, not out of narcissism, but uh, just to find a clear example of these accusations, I would like to uh, quote you uh, one paragraph from a very critical review in some German newspaper, I think, uh, of my intervention at the uh, Walter Benjamin conference in Ramallah almost a year ago. The writer claims that I enumerate, quote, a detailed list of ritualized sexual violences taking place outside of the Islamic world thus showing his, mine, willingness to accompany horror kill, honor killings with matching atrocities. He, me, was each time rhetorically apologetic about his descriptions. It's really hard to talk about this, but I must tell you. And each time he, me, came back with more obscene, bloody, and graphic details. This is sufficient to grasp 
the pointlessness and ambivalence of his mind intervention, displaying concerns about sexual violence by subjecting the watchful audience to the very violence of crude images of or heinous sexual practices, end of quote. Here you have the logic that I totally reject. Why? Uh, I think this passage that I quoted confronts us with the prototype of politically correct line of argumentation. I not only reject it, but consider it extremely dangerous. In order to really grasp sexual violence, I claim, one has to be shocked, traumatized even, by it. If we constrain ourselves to aseptic technical descriptions, we do exactly the same as those who refer to torture as enhanced interrogation technique, or, I warn you, I think this will be true in five to ten years, we will soon begin to refer to rape as, it sounds more PC, nobody's heard, to enhanced seduction technique. It is only the taste of the thing itself that effectively vaccinates us against it. And we can already see the consequences of such a stance, politically correct stance, when, you may remember it, two months ago, at the beginning of September of this year, Facebook censored the iconic Napalm girl photo of a terrified nine-years-old naked Vietnamese girl running away from Napalm bombs. It hypocritically justified this removal as a defense against displaying child nudity, which can even count as child pornography, ignoring the obvious political dimension, as if anyone could really be sexually aroused by the photo of a terrified girl. What this image could trigger is clearly not sexual arousal, but the awareness of the horror of war against civilian population. Uh, along these lines, uh, Nikki Johnson Houston, if I got it correctly from the, the author's description, a black, I mean African-American lawyer, she described eloquently how White, lib uh, quote, white liberals have hijacked the conversation about diversity, political correctness, and what topics we should be outraged about. End of quote. And now comes the full, slightly longer quote from this guy, with which I fully agree, of course. My problem with liberalism is that it's more concerned with policing people's language and thoughts without requiring them to do anything to fix the problem. White liberal college students speak of safe spaces, trigger words, microaggressions, and white privilege, while not having to do anything or, more importantly, give up anything. They can't even have a conversation with someone who sees the world differently without resorting to calling someone a racist, homophobic, misogynistic, bigot, and trying to have them banned from campus or ruin them and their reputation. They they say they feel black people's pain because they took a trip to Africa to help the disadvantaged, but are unwilling to go to a black neighborhood in the city in which they live. These same college students will espouse the joys of diversity, but will, in the same breath, assume you are only on campus, if you're African-American, because of affirmative action, or that all black people grew up in poverty." End of quote. 
Therein resides for me the political problem with political correctness. To repeat Robespierre, it admits the injustices of the actual life, but it wants to cure them with, again, what Robespierre called a revolution without revolution, in exact parallel to today's consumerism, which offers coffee without caffeine, chocolate without sugar, beer without alcohol, multiculturalism without violent clashes, and so on and so on. A vision of social change where, with no actual change, a change where no blood is spilled, where no one gets really hurt, well, where well-meaning liberals remain cocooned in their safe enclaves. Uh, now you will say, but nonetheless, there is one big result of this politically correct influence precisely because of what political correctness stands for. We did have a chance with Hillary Clinton to have the first woman president of the United States. Of course, I would be mega glad if this were to happen, but I see some problem. We live more than ever in an ideological era where, you know, the first thing to ask is what precisely was meant by a woman? How what image of woman, of woman, femininity predominates in the ideological space where you can get someone like Hillary Clinton elected. I would like to pro provide a provisional, at least, a reply to this question by referring to Alain Badiou's new book, uh, The True Life, La Vraie Vie where Badiou already begins with a wonderful provocative claim that from Socrates onward, the function of philosophy is to corrupt the youth, to alienate or rather in Brechtian sense, extranate them from the predominant ideological political order, to sow radical doubts, to enable them to think autonomously. No wonder Socrates, the first philosopher, was also its first victim ordered by the democratic court of Athens to drink poison. And here, incidentally, just small improvisations, I have a problem even with my good friend, Yanis uh, uh, Varoufakis, who I think believes a little bit too much in this, you know, democratizing Europe. But again, nothing against it in principle. But what does he concretely mean with democracy? Let me tell you something very sad that I experienced. Let's take Europe and don't feel too bad, you in the United States. You think you are in bad situation now. I think Europe is much worse. Penetrated by such, such outrageous racist discourse, we even have Europeans who, in a pseudo-dialectical way, reunite Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Like, you know, I almost like it, it's so perverse. The topic now among European, well, it's not even extreme right. You find them in big media. In my own country, Slovenia, a guy, it's an obscenity to pronounce his name, attacked George Soros as literally the most despicable and dangerous person today. Why? Because he is, that's how he is addressed in that text, a Talmudo Zionist who is organizing the invasion of Europe by Negroid Islamist 
hordes, not even crowds, hordes, like primitive hordes. And uh, so, okay, he goes on, but what fascinated me so much is that we naive people, we thought there is maybe some misunderstanding between uh, Jews and Arabs in the Middle East, so we should help them to find a shared uh, emancipatory project. No, no, this guy has an answer, which is at the level of that old Nazi answer, you know, plutocratic Bolshevik plot, you know. He claims that there is no antagonism between Islamic fundamentalism and Zionism, because Jews are secret puppet masters organizing ISIS and all that to ruin Christian European civilization and so on and so on. What shocked me is not the fact of claiming this, but that it was openly published in one of the biggest uh, weekly newspapers in Slovenia, and, okay, people laughed, were shocked, but no serious public, re public uh, reaction uh, to it. So, uh, uh, what, I'm, uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that Europe is getting even worse, and the problem with democracy here is this one. I've spoken with many people from Brussels and so on, Listen, what does it mean democratizing Europe? Let's take two big topics with which European Union was dealing in the last year and a half. Greek crisis and uh, refugees. Are you aware that in both cases, if the process of decision in Brussels were to be more transparent, responsible to the people, the result would have been much worse? I know, I spoke with a Slovene representative in Brussels who told me he was only able to argue, let's not be so tough, against Greece in closed sessions. Because the moment the debate was public, our media reported it and he was under tremendous racist pressure, like how could you help those lazy Greeks who are ruining us? It's the same with refugees. If you were to do in a democratic way. It means what? Organizing referendum in most European countries. Do you want refugees or not? Practically all European countries would have rejected them. So I think, not that I'm her mega political fan, but here I think Angela Merkel did the right thing. She consciously went against the opinion of the majority with this typical risky gesture that authentic politicians should do, you do something that you know it's not popular, but you hope that through insisting on it, you will change the situation to such an extent that retroactively people will see uh, uh, the justice of it. So much about democracy. Let me return to Badiou. Today, however, the task of a philosopher is no longer to undermine the hegemonic, hierarchic, symbolic edifice which grounds social stability, but to make the young, young people perceive the dangers of the growing post-patriarchal nihilist order which presents itself as the domain of new freedoms. I often repeat this, but I will do it again. We live in a wonderful, wonderful in the sense of horror, ideological era where, and that's always the greatest success of ideology, where the very new burdens, new forms of domination are presented to you as new freedoms. For example, precarious work is more and more 
becoming a rule. In my own city country, Slovenia, almost half the people already work precariously. And you think, oh my God, it's horrible, I cannot even rely on my job. Then comes some uh, postmodern theorist of society of choice and so on, and tells you something like, almost copying Judith Butler, incidentally. But isn't it wonderful that you are given the free choice every half a year or year to reinvent yourself? You are no longer transfixed to certain alienated identity and so on and so on. Even they argue in the same way, even with abolishing uh, universal health care. They say now you have a choice. You can opt. Either you spend your money for health care or you can risk your health and rather, I don't know, provide for your children's education or take a big holiday or whatever. But you see the trick. New burdens, new anxieties are presented to you as new uh, freedoms. We live in an extraordinary era where there is no tradition on which we can firmly base our identity. No frame of meaningful life which would enable us to live a life beyond hedonist reproduction. This new world disorder, this gradually emerging worldless, like it's no longer world in this Heideggerian sense of the totality of meaning, worldless civilization exemplarily affects the young who oscillate between, on the one hand, the intensity of fully burning out sexual enjoyment, drugs, alcohol, up to violence, and radical search for a career, endeavor to succeed, study, earn money, within the existing capitalist order. The only alternative to all this is obviously violent retreat into some artificially resuscitated tradition. There are attempts to assert a social form of radical negativity, unconstrained expenditure in Georges Bataille's sense of sovereignty as the only thing that can really undermine the smooth flow of capitalist reproduction. For example, among these lines, Lee Edelman, whom I otherwise appreciate, has developed the notion of homosexuality as involving an ethics of now, of unconditional fidelity to jouissance, extreme enjoyment, of following the death drive by totally ignoring any reference to the future or engagement with the practical uh, network of world affairs. Homosexuality thus for Edelman stands for the radical assumption of the negativity of death drive or withdrawal from reality into the real of the night of the world. Along these lines, Edelman opposes the radical ethics of homosexuality to the predominant obsession with posterity, that is to say children. Children are, for Edelman, pathological moment which binds us to pragmatic considerations and thus compels us to betray the radical ethics of jouissance. However, I'm more tempted to claim that the, the unleashing of such radical negativity is just the obverse of the capitalist manipulative calculation, its own self-destructive aspect. We all, you know, capitalist consumerism is never simple consumerism. It's always divided between extreme consumerism, drugs, mortal enjoyment, sex, getting drunk, whatever, and the controlled version, like enjoy but 
within certain measures and so on and so on. So again, my thesis is here very radical. I see absolutely nothing in any meaningful way socially transgressive, transformative into saying follow the death drive to its end or whatever. Now, let me go on. We are getting here a reactive even, a reactive decadent version of what Marx called or desired the withering away of the state. Today's state, state in the sense of state, political state, is more and more an administrative regulator of market egotism with no symbolic authority, lacking what Hegel perceived as the essence of state, the all-encompassing uh, community for which we are ready to sacrifice our lives. This disintegration of ethical substance is clearly signaled by the abolishment of universal military conscription in many developed countries. Okay, you will say this is nice, we no longer have militarism, but I claim the very notion of being ready to risk one's life for a common cause appears today more and more pointless, if not directly ridiculous. So that armed forces as a body in which all citizens equally participate is gradually turning into a mercenary force. You know, that's the other sad aspect of, uh, uh, of abolishing universal military conscription, that we are ultimately controlled, ruled by uh, by. Uh, mercenaries. Now, let me go on. This disintegration of a shared ethical substance, that's Badiou's thesis, affects differently the two predominant hegemonic gender identities. Men are gradually turning into perpetual adolescents with no clear passage of initiation that would enact their entry into maturity. It's clear, till like 30, 40 years ago, there were clear rights of initiation for men. Usually it was in those countries which had it military service. After that, you really became a man. Or it was getting a permanent job, a profession. Even education worked like that. After finishing university, you are potentially a worker, you are there. But all this with precarious work, with abolishing military uh, uh, conscription, with education, with, okay, I agree with you, Trumpization of education, where, you know, instead of this good old, I love it more and more, alienated process of education for four or five years, you are detached from so-called real life, you just study. Now the idea is all your life you should learn, you study, which means study becomes part of capitalist uh, reproduction and so on and so on. No wonder then that in order to supplement this lack, post-paternal youth gangs proliferate, providing ersatz initiation and social identity. Now comes Badiou's other thesis, which may be problematic, but I think it can be saved. According to Badiou, in contrast to men, women are today more and more precociously mature, treated as small adults, already as small girls expected to control their lives, to plan their career, and so on and so on. What then is happening today with sexual difference in the traditional sense of gender binary? 
traditionally, men were perceived as the bearers of the one, the monotheistic God, patriarchal power, stable social hierarchy, while women were associated with the two, their position being the one of between the two, whatever, between mother and whore, between lover and saint, and so on. But you see in this between the two something much deeper than an after effect of patriarchy. Quote from Badiou's book, a woman is the overcoming of the one in the guise of a passage between the two. Such is my speculative definition of femininity, end of quote. The conclusion he draws from this is surprising but consequent. I love it. His claim is that by their very existence, women are not so much atheists are a direct embodiment of resistance to one to God, denouncing it as a fiction. I will read you this short passage. I love it. From Badiou. A woman is always by herself the terrestrial proof that God doesn't exist, that God doesn't have to exist. It is sufficient to take a look at a woman, what is called really to take a look, to be immediately convinced then that one can well do without God. This is why in traditional societies, women are hidden. Things are here more serious than a vulgar sexual possessiveness of jealousy. Tradition knows that in order to keep God alive in whatever way, women have to be kept invisible. I mean, it's a wonderful naive statement. I find it a little bit problematic, but he is onto something. Let me go on. Today, however, when the reign of the symbolic one is weakened, the hierarchy of roles and places under a divine name of the father, this hierarchy is becoming hierarchy is becoming largely irrelevant. To fill in this void, a new one in the sense of individuality is emerging. A hedonist consumer caught in market competition enjoying life and simultaneously a ruthless manipulator in how she, he, they, it does it. Here, unexpectedly, sexual difference enters. Men are ludic adolescents, outlaws, out of law. Women, more and more hard, mature, serious, legal, punitive beings. This is why, as Badiou claims, there is a bourgeois feminism bent on domination. Uh, women are today not called upon by the ruling ideology to be subordinated. They are called, solicited, expected to be judges, administrators, ministers, CEOs, teachers, even police women and soldiers. <coughs> A paradigmatic scene occurring daily in our security institutions, I don't know how it is with you here, but in Europe it is like this, is that of a feminine teacher, judge, psychologist, taking care of an immature, asocial, young male delinquent. But you, this has to be said about him, who is not at this level bluffing. He adopted two small African-American boys, no African, you see, this is the limit of political correctness, black. It's ridiculous to call them in Europe African-Americans, uh, 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 who uh, were uh, 
came from a mother, uh, a single mother who died from AIDS and so on. Uh, his and this sons got into some legal troubles. He said that the scene was as a rule for these young boys. The face of power was a woman who was at the same time a little bit maternal, caring. Oh, I want to understand you to help you, but no less brutal, efficient. The voice of power. A new figure of the one is thus arising, a cold, competitive agent of power, seductive and manipulative, attesting to the paradox that, in the conditions of capitalism, women can sometimes do better than men. Now, to avoid a misunderstanding, I must be very careful here. I am not in any way making women suspicious as today's agent of capitalism and so on. I only think that in the conditions of late capitalism, if women want to become powerful, which I totally support, even if this power can be brutal and so on. I think that more and more in our society, from England after Brexit to Germany to the unfortunate Margaret Thatcher 30 years, 20 years ago, to India, Indira Gandhi and so on, you know, we men are more and more bullshitters. If you want job to be done in a tough way, you need a woman, not a man. What all I'm saying is that this woman, this figure of feminine identity that the system offers to you to be successful is very suspicious. It's another trap of the... Uh, trap of the existing order. There is a political triad which renders perfectly this predicament that I'm trying to describe. Three names enter. Hillary, Duterte, Trump. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are they not today's ultimate political couple? Trump is precisely what Badiou is describing, the eternal adolescent, a reckless hedonist, prone to irrational, brutal outbursts, that hurt or appear to hurt his chances, while Hillary exemplifies the new feminine one, a self-controlled, ruthless manipulator who recklessly exploits her femininity and presents herself as caring for the marginal victims and her femininity makes her all the more efficient in manipulation. So one should not be seduced by Hillary Clinton's image of the victim of Bill, Bill Clinton, who was gladly philandering around, allowing women to suck him whatever you want. I think Bill was the true clown, while she was always the master in the relationship, allowing her servant Bill small irrelevant pleasure, like, listen, Bill, I'm now in the middle of some serious manipulation, go to Monica, leave me, leave me alone. I almost like this, I mean, it's not criticism. So what then about Rodrigo Duterte, the Philippine president openly soliciting extrajudicial murders, as you know, murders of drug addicts and dealers, going up to comparing himself with Hitler. He stands for the decay of the rule of law, for the transformation of state power into an extra-legal mob rule administering its wild justice. As such, he does what is not yet permissible to do openly in our so-called civilized Western 
countries. So if we condense the three into one, we get an ideal image of the politician today. I would call him Hillary Duterte Trump. Hillary Trump, the main opposition, plus Duterte, the embarrassing intruder who signals violence that sustains both. And uh, you know where we can see this decay of legal order, even in your society, for example? You remember, when was it, a couple of months ago, when a guy also called some policeman, uh, sorry, shot some policeman. I don't know where. Then all the right-wingers with Trump, of course, on their head, exploded. Like, that's enough. That's too much. Will we now allow policemen to be freely shot? But this scandalized me because, you know why? Because let's compare these two, okay, crimes. A desperate individual shoots policemen and in excessive use of force, police shoots usually to death, usually a black guy. I claim not the first, the second crime is much more dangerous. Why? In the first case, when... A lone guy, I think it was a, a black army veteran, shoots policemen. This is simply external to the law. Some outsider takes revenge. But when policemen do the killings, this means undermining rule of the law from within. It's incomparably worse, I claim. Now, let me move a step forward. As for the underlying form of subjectivity in all these shifts to post-patriarchal society, we are clearly dealing with the sexualized version of the so-called post-traditional protean subject. Today, I claim, the hegemonic form of subjectivity is no longer the autonomous subject subordinated to the paternal Oedipal law which guarantees his, her, their moral freedom, but a fluid subject that experiences itself as permanently reinventing, reconstructing itself, joyfully experimenting with combinations of different sexual and other identities. Um, so I think that the problem for me with those, let's call them whatever you want, post-feminist or whatever, who claim who see the emancipatory dimension of sexual struggles into asserting this fluid, uh, non-fixed identity, you know, in the sense of <coughs> don't get transfixed onto one role, reconstruct yourself all the time, and so on and so on. My only counter-argument is that where is the emancipatory potential? This is the hegemonic form of subjectivity today. Even if it's not yet majority, I claim majoritarian, it's clearly the one which defines the entire field. And although I hate, maybe even more than you, the ridiculous attempts to return to patriarchy by uh, all the Christian fundamentalists and so on and so on, they are precisely this, a ridiculous reaction. So, uh, this is why, again, the obsessive attacks on patriarchy and Oedipal order sound so false and desperate. They attack an enemy which is in full retreat, reacting to something new which is already hegemonic. In short, 
The problem with this vision of a new fluid subjectivity is not that it is utopian, but that it is already predominant. Yet another case of the hegemonic ideology presenting itself as subversive and transgressive of the existing, uh, of the existing order. Here, if you ask me, I don't have time to go into it. Here, although I cannot emphasize enough with all the problems that brought me my approach to this topic, LGBT, transgender, and so on, I was just shocked how people didn't notice this, that I not only totally support LGBT movement, or whatever we call it, transgender, I even admit a certain, I hate this word because it's not proper here, normative superiority of transgender people. In what sense? I do this as a Lacanian. For Lacan, the basic premise is il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel. There is no sexual relationship. Which means precisely that what Lacan is reproached with, he implies too, he, that he remains fully within the binary gender opposition. No, for Lacan, the point is that precisely this opposition always fails. Sexual identity is something, sorry, sexual difference is something which is a true antagonism in the sense that it's immanently thwarted problematic. You never can find an identity. Every identity fails. And we, ordinary heterosexuals, if we are or whatever, even gay people. Now I will again, I love to provoke you, no, because I'm old, close to retirement, screw you. You can do, you cannot fire me and so on, you know. Uh, you know what I never got? Uh, okay, now I will say you will immediately attack me uh, as the worst form of racism. Some of gay people are among my best friends, you know. <laughs> so don't misunderstand me, but I, can you correct me where I'm wrong? Uh, some gay theorists, like Tim Dean, whom I otherwise appreciate very much, point out how, uh, for them, we should render sexual difference more fluid and so on. For them, even, Lacan's notion of sexual difference is Lacan's fundamental fantasy. The idea is clear. It's kind of a pseudo-Delesian idea that the primordial factor of our sexual lives is some kind of fluid, polymorphous perversion, and then bad Oedipus imposes the big gender difference, totalizes it. But I never got something. Can you explain to me in what sense being gay or lesbian undermines uh, uh, the gender binary? Like, if I am gay, I am a guy who wants to screw guys, or being screwed by them, I will not go into it. But... <laughs> The gender binary is strictly 100% here. I just choose the other half, but still, half are, half are excluded and so on. So I think that uh, the way to really undermine heterosexual normativity is, I don't have time to go into it, something much more radical I developed in, in some of my books. I wonder if you would agree. I'm, of course, repeating old stuff, but what the hell. Uh, uh, did you see two movies that I appreciate very much? M. Butterfly, Cronenberg, and The Crying Game, uh, Neil Jordan. In both of them, a guy falls in love with a beautiful woman when they are at the point of consuming their sexual relationship, he discovers that the woman is a man. 
It's a kind of a nice ironic reversal of this founding scene of fetishism for Freud when boy looks at another, at a girl, and uh, there is no penis there. Here, the problem is that there is a penis there. It shouldn't have been. Okay. Now, some gay theorists were criticizing these films, claiming that they are still some kind of a compromise. Like, why didn't the films openly admit that these two guys knew from the very beginning, some subconsciously, unconsciously, fully, half-consciously, that their object of desire is a man, they just were not ready to openly admit to themselves. No, Lacan's Lacanian reading would have been, I claim, much more radical and beautiful. What, is, what these movies present is not an, this extreme, exceptional case of a guy who is, doesn't admit to himself that he is gay. What if this, the scene of these films is the innermost logic of the normal, at least from the male side, heterosexual love? Lacan's idea is that the unconscious fantasy, which from the male side sustains man's love for a femme fatale, is that this femme fatale is really a man dressed up as a woman. And again, this is not an exception. This is it. Which is why for Lacan, as he says, the only true heterosexuals are lesbians. Heterosexual men are sub subspecies of homosexuality. So again, you see my point, it's not enough to say against uh, uh, heterosexual binary gender roles, yeah, but they are, f they are fluid, blah, blah, blah. No, things are much more perverse. They are, it's not just that the norm is never fully realized. It's that the norm subverts itself from, from, uh, from within. Uh, the other, uh, so... My point would be this one. I'm just a little bit more Marxist-Freudian here. For me, transgender persons embody at its purest the deadlock of sexual difference. Far f they, they embody this difference as impossible. Uh, which is why, again, one tends to ignore them, makes it difficult for them. But here comes the problem, and I'm not bluffing here, please believe me. Forget now about all my bad taste jokes, that's how my mother and God created me, it's not my responsibility. I, but uh, what I try to say is that, you know, for example, I read somewhere that now even the city of New York, some human rights committee, established a list of 31 uh, sexual identities, and of course, it's obvious this anti-straight heterosexuality pleasure in it, like men, women are listed just one among, as if at the same level as butch, uh, bigender, trigender, whatever. You know, I have nothing against it. Uh, just I don't believe that. I sometimes find with transgender people, some of them, this secret dream that we are full of anxiety under oppression because we cannot find, locate ourselves within the big binary, gender binary. But if you provide a wide enough classification, ah, we will be more at ease, we will find slot for ourselves. No, you will never find it. And that's why, uh, uh, for me, the best of... LGBT is 
I love them here. You know what is now the official formula? LGBT plus or LGBTQ whatever plus. The idea of plus is all those who are not included. But what I like is to include into the classification its externality. Marx knew it. Hegel knew it. Every classification in order to work has to include a, such a paradoxical element. For example, you know, from Michel Foucault, uh, uh, The Order of Things, in the introduction, I think, he refers to Borges, a text by Borges, where Borges enumerates a crazy ancient Chinese classification of all dogs, which is totally nonsensical, like dogs with big tail, black dogs, dogs with three legs, whatever. But at the end, the last category is all the dogs which are not included into this list. So, uh, I, again, all I want to do is to assert this my point. There is plurality, I totally agree with LGBT people, there is a plurality of gender identities, but it's not some natural primordial fact, precisely because sexual relationship is impossible. For me, and here I am a classical Freudian Marxist, even Derrida, I think it's more with me here, that plurality is always the result of some basic thwarted impossibility of the one or whatever. Here I disagree with my good friend Badiou, who goes all too easy with this idea of some primordial multitude, multiplicity, and then one only arrives later, and so on, and so on. Uh, now I will do something really evil, but I love it. That's why I will do it. Namely, uh, uh, do you know that in California, where else, there are already some capitalists who... Referring to this, and I think it's a misuse, I'm here making fun just of these capitalists, who claim if we deconstruct gender, byron, gender uh, binary, should we not also deconstruct class binary? And some of them even attempted to say, no, there are not only capitalists and proletarians, but there is a multiplicity of positions <laughs> which cannot be reduced to this binary. And what I try to do in my absolutely evil way is to establish a kind of a list of this class multitude, like what if we have by class, like by gender, by class position, a proletarian sub-employing and exploiting other proletarians, <laughs> masturbatory cross-class, a small company uh, self-employed owner exploiting himself. <laughs> Class queen, a motherly capitalist who takes care of her workers but tolerates no trade unions. Then you have PTC, proletarian to capitalist. Uh, CTP, capitalist to proletarian. Class bender, class queer, pan-class, non-class, trans-class, A-class, third-class, class fluid, non-binary trans-class, class gifted, then you have my favorite. You know, one in this uh, list provided by New York City authorities of 31 identities, one is two-spirit. I don't know if it holds for sex, it certainly holds for capitalists. Aren't people like, like George Soros or Bill Gates two-spirit capitalists? Half-time ruthless manipulators, 
one spirit, then the other half of the time, the most generous humanitarians and so on. It's two spirit. Then we have precarious proletarian, digital capitalist, CEC books, a capitalist brutally exploiting another capitalist. <laughs> As they say in Mikado, Gilbert and Sullivan, my favorite opera, uh, they are all on the list and none of them will be missed. Why? And here comes another thing. I totally support and understand LGBT people when they claim that uh, when they demand for themselves the right how they are referred to. I just claim that I don't accept this as a general universal principles. It holds for sexuality, I, but I definitely am not ready to concede this as a general principle. We all have right to be called the way we want so that we will not be hurt. I mean, to give you an extreme example, take somebody like Hitler. No, she should be called dirty criminal, monster. He should be called precisely so that it will hurt as much as possible, and so on. Uh, but okay, that's another story. Now I want to go on through you, it's I'm taking a lot of time. Okay, what I will do now is uh, go into these elections. What happened here? What do I see as a problem based on all that I developed till now of these uh, elections? Trump said he wants to make America great again. To what President Obama responded that America already is great. Here I respectfully disagree with Obama. Can a country in which a person like Trump can become a president really be considered <laughs> great? I mean, something is wrong here. The dangers of Trump presidency are obvious. He not only promises to nominate conservative judges to the Supreme Court, he not only mobilizes the darkest white supremacy circles and he openly flirts with anti-immigrant racism. And yesterday I sent a message, like warning him a little bit to my otherwise good friend, Julian Assange. Did you know who was the last guy who sent a congratulatory, congratulatory message to Assange? Our good friend, David Duke. So you see, strange games are being played here. But so again, let's go on. Uh, uh, Trump not only flouts basic rules of decency, he not only symbolizes the disintegration of basic ethical standards, while advocating concern for the misery of ordinary people, he effectively promotes a brutal neoliberal agenda inclusive of uh, tax breaks for the rich and so on and so on. Trump, but okay, now I will not celebrate Trump, don't be afraid. I think what we can say for Trump is that he is simply a vulgar opportunist. That's why, did you notice this? From time to time, he says something that it's even half makes sense. For example, when Bernie Sanders endorsed Hillary, Trump made a wonderful statement. Remember, he said it's like somebody from Occupy Wall Street to, to, to endorse Lehman Brothers or whatever. But uh, Trump is a vulgar opportunist. But he is still somehow member of our species, of humanity. He's just the low vulgar example of it. But what about entities, I didn't say humans, like Ted Cruz or Rick Santoro? 
They are not human. Do you think they are human? They are some kind of... I'm serious here. There is something so monstrous in the way they talk. It's no longer that you can identify with them. Oh, they simply embody the nastiest part in me and so on and so on. But what Trump is definitely not is a... Let's presume in a naive way that this exists. A successful, productive, innovative capitalist. That's the tragedy. Trump excels, what Trump excels in is getting into bankruptcy and then making the taxpayers cover up his debts and so on and so on. Trump is not what he presents himself, a a genius uh, capitalist or whatever. Liberals panicked, who are in panic because of Trump, dismiss the idea that Trump's eventual victory can start a process out of which an authentic left would emerge. Their counter-argument is a reference to Hitler. Many German communists welcomed, that's a very sad story in Europe, welcomed in 1933 the Nazi takeover as a new chance for the radical left as the only force which can defeat them. But, as we all know, their appreciation was a catastrophic mistake. True, at the end the Nazis lost, but... Many things from Holocaust on happened in between. So the question is, are things the same with Trump? Is Trump a danger which should bring together a broad front in the same way that Hitler did? A front where decent conservatives and libertarians fight together with mainstream liberal progressives and whatever remains of the radical left. Uh, Frankly, I doubt it. Now comes just a little bit of pages, I will not be too long, uh, 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 the problematic part. First, the fear that a Trump victory would have turned the USA into a fascist state, I think, simply doesn't hold. United States, incidentally, I have a problem even with term fascism. I think the term fascism is often used by today's left in a totally non-conceptual way. Something bad is emerging You don't know what it is, so bum, let's call it fascism, and so on. No, 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 I'm not saying Trump is better or whatever. I'm just saying Trump is not in that precise sense a fascist. Uh, uh, First, I think, again, this doesn't hold. United States still have a relatively rich texture of divergent civic political institutions so that they're direct Gleichschaltung, what we call putting under the same global order, cannot be enacted. Where then does this fear of Trump come from? Its function, I claim, is to unify us all against Trump and thus to obfuscate the true political divisions which run between the left resuscitated by Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, who is the establishment candidate supported by a rainbow coalition which includes old George Bush cult warriors like Paul Wolfowitz and Saudi Arabian money. Second problem. Uh, The fact remains that Trump draws support from the same rage out of which Bernie Sanders mobilized his partisans. He is perceived by the majority of his supporters as an anti-establishment candidate. And what we should never forget is that popular rage is by definition free-floating. It can be redirected. Liberals who fear Trump victory 
and now they got it, are not really, that's my crazy thesis. Now comes what you call now trigger warning. Like the way you deserve it when you quoted that extremely racist Helderin's poem against uh, uh, Braune Frauen, you know. Here come my Braune Frauen. Uh, uh, liberals who fear Trump victory are not really afraid, I claim, of a radical rightist turn. What they are really afraid of is simply an actual social change. Again, to repeat Robespierre, they want a revolution without a revolution. They are sincerely worried about injustices of our social life, racism, sexism, economic exploitation, but they want to, they want to cure them in a soft way. George Orwell, back in 1937, wrote a wonderful quote. We all rail against class distinctions, but very few people seriously want to abolish them. Here you come upon the important fact that every revolutionary opinion draws part of its strength from a secret conviction that nothing can be changed. End of quote. Orwell's point is that radicals invoke the need for revolutionary change as a kind of superstitious token that should achieve the opposite prevent the only change that really matters, the change in those who rule us, this change from occurring. So that's my very problematic, here comes my very problematic thesis. Hillary's victory would have been the victory of a status quo overshadowed by the prospect of a new world war. And Hillary definitely is a typical democratic cold Warrior. It would have been a status quo of a situation in which we gradually but inevitably slide towards ecological, economic, humanitarian and other uh, catastrophes. That's why I consider extremely cynical leftist critics of my position who claim that, I quote from an online attack on me, to intervene in a crisis, the left, they claim, must be organized prepared and with support among the working class and oppressed. We cannot in any way endorse the vile racism and sexism which divides us and weakens our struggle. We must always stand on the side of the oppressed and we must be independent, fighting for a real left exit to the crisis. Even if Trump causes a catastrophe for the ruling class, it will also be a catastrophe for us if we have not laid the foundations for our own intervention. It sounds convincing. You know, what's my problem? The guy claims, let's wait till we are fully organized. Well, this will never happen. You have to begin with some risky acts. You know, this is precisely what Rosa Luxemburg criticized as social democratic opportunism. No, it's not yet the time for revolution. What do you think that if we wait and wait and wait, I don't know how it's called that... Uh, those marginal communist groups that you have will grow into a big party and there will be a mega coalition, millions of transgender, gays, immigrant workers marching together. No, if you wait the right moment, the right moment will never arrive. So my comment on that passage. True, the left must be organized, prepared, and with support among the working class and oppressed, end of quote. But in this case, the question should be, which candidate's victory would contribute more to the organization of the left and its expansion? Isn't it clear that Trump's victory 
maybe will lay the foundations for our own interventions, much more than eventual, it didn't happen, Hillary's victory. Yes, I'm first to admit it, there is a great danger in Trump's victory, but the left can only be mobilized through such catastrophes. If we continue the inertia of the existing status quo, there will for sure be no leftist uh, mobilization. Many of the poor voters claim Trump speaks for them. How can, now you will say, how can they recognize themselves in the voice of a billionaire whose speculations and failures are one of the causes of their misery? But when Trump supporters are denounced as white trash, it is easy to discern in this designation the fear of the lower classes that characterizes the liberal elite. Now comes the very concluding part. Clinton's defeat was, I claim, the price she had to pay for neutralizing Bernie Sanders. She did not lose because she moved too much to the left, but precisely because she was too centrist and in this way failed to capture the anti-establishment revolt that sustained both Trump and Sanders. Trump reminded the people of the, and that's for me the true achievement of Trump, he did it in a wrong proto-fascist way, but nonetheless, he reminded people of the half-forgotten reality of class struggle. Of course, again, he did it in a distorted proto-fascist populist way. Trump's anti-establishment rage was a kind of return of the repressed, of what was repressed in the more moderate liberal left politics, which focuses on uh, cultural issues and so on and so on. The, this left got from Trump its own message in its inverted true form. You know, the left forgot about class struggle, forgot, or eliminated it by getting rid of Bernie Sanders, and that's what was for me almost the genius of Hillary. He built this impossible coalition where you have Occupy Wall Street and Wall Street. You have Saudi Arabian money and, uh, and LGBT or whatever. But what really happened? She integrated all these radical sexual and other struggles by way of neutralizing their radical emancipatory uh, 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 political edge. And in this way, she tragically contributed to the situation in which this sense of anti-establishment sense of class exploitation then articulates itself in right-wing populism. Arrogant liberal commentators are shocked at how their continuous acerbic attacks on Trump's vulgar, racist, and sexist outbursts, factual inaccuracies, economic nonsense, and so on, did not hurt him at all. Here you can see, at best, this leftist naive arrogance. You know, it's easy to make fun. Idiot, Trump, this, that. And when they just remember how often Trump was proclaimed that. He made this mistake when he attacked, I don't know, McCain as a fake hero, or that, was it, which nationality? Iranian soldier who fell and then he insulted his father or whatever. And people thought, oh, it's over with him. 
I remember a big title after one of these accidents, Trump just killed himself, he is dead. You know where they fell? They should have read Lacan a little bit more. <laughs> because they totally missed how identification works. We, as a rule, identify precisely with others' weaknesses. So the more Trump's limitations were mocked, the more ordinary people identified with him and perceived attacks on him as condescending attacks on themselves. The subliminal message to ordinary people of Trump's vulgarities was, I am really one of you. While ordinary Trump supporters felt constantly humiliated by the liberal elites patronizing, uh, patronizing attitude towards them. So that's the tragedy. The left paid for ignoring the class issue. It returned in this proto-fascist obscene forum. You know what Walter Benjamin said long ago? Behind every fascism, there is a failed revolution. Applied to the United States, and I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders was a big revolutionary. I'm just saying that behind the rise of Trump, there is the failure of Bernie Sanders. And I sincerely admire Bernie Sanders. Why? Because I think that the only chance in the United States for the rise of a more radical emancipatory movement, and don't be afraid, I'm not expecting some new communist party, especially not with Bob Avakian or with the guy and so on. All I'm saying is that, uh, all I'm saying is that the key task is this one, and that's why I admire Bernie Sanders, in spite of all his compromises and so on. I still don't get it, for example, why did he have to publicly endorse in such a ridiculous way Hillary? I understand it, delicate situation, he, uh, uh, he could not oppose her, but couldn't he just withdraw with silent dignity or whatever? But let me go on. So, uh, uh, you know what's for me the true greatness of Bernie Sanders? What's our dream? We have all these cultural LGBT against sexism, racism struggles, and we have the big economic struggle, refugees, all the poor, and so on, to bring these two struggles together. And Bernie almost did it. In what sense? His miracle is this one. His voters in many states of the United States, especially in his home state, are precisely those low-middle-class low farmers, workers, who are the ideal, ideally get caught into right-wing populism without, without redirecting to us that anti-establishment popular support that Trump mobilized, there is no chance for the left to achieve anything. So, again, in this sense, don't misunderstand me. I'm not in any way for Trump, and certainly not, it amuses me what I read a couple of days ago, that I endorse Trump because Melania, his wife, is Slovene, and I'm hoping for invitation to White House. Okay, I will tell you this. I can be bribed, but not in such a cheap way, you know, like... If Trump says, why don't you get, get maybe not Trump Tower in New York, but Trump Tower in Chicago and so on, I might reflect upon it, no, but, but not for a visit to White House. No. For example, I even remember years ago, Warren Beatty, when he did that apparently progressive film about Jack Reed, Rats, no? I was so mad when I learned that he went to 
at that point, it, Reagan was the president. He went to the White House to show the film to Reagan, who was grateful for it, celebrated the film. But to go on, my hope is this one, that if Hillary, and I'm open here, I'm not bluffing, I'm ready to change my mind, maybe I'm going too far, but if Hillary were to win, we would have the continuation of status quo. Of course, it would have been, in a way, much better. But I claim it wouldn't solve the problem. She is Cold War establishment embodied. Four years later or more, we would have Trump back or somebody like Trump, Trump with a vengeance. What we got now is what? Maybe the price is too high. I'm, I can be reconverted here. But I still have this idea that very soon Trump will encounter tensions in his own Republican Party. Like Ronald Reagan already was master of this double game. He knew, you know how Ronald Reagan ruled? I read in some good essay. When he talked to Christian conservatives, he told them, I'm totally on your side. No abortion and so on. But you see, for us to rule, we need the support of those big corrupted Republican capitalists and upper classes who are decadent personally, so be patient and wait. Then he went to these business-oriented Republicans and tell them, I'm totally on your side, who cares about abortion? But you know, in order to win, we need the support of those stupid fundamentalist jerks and so on. <laughs> I don't think that in today's state of things, Trump can play this game. The tension, which is more and more constitutive of Republican Party, between the business, more modern-oriented uh, wing and fundamentalists, will, I claim, will, uh, this tension will have to explode. Already now, there was, I say this with great irony, of course, there was one mega-achievement of Donald Trump. He single-handedly practically ruined the Republican Party. <laughs> it's not so bad. Okay, second thing. Uh, now, with loss of Hillary. So there is a hope that when Trump will not be able to deliver, he will have to do something with this anti-establishment rage. He will not deliver. There is a possibility that they will be redirected towards another more leftist radical project. Plus, there will be now deep self-examination within Democratic Party. There is a possibility that they will finally get it. That, that's the nice paradox. It's not always this famous, her husband, Bill Clinton's triangulation, which brings victory. Sometimes to win, you have to be more radical. That's what great politicians learn and, that, and are able to do. So that's the absolute limit of my ha-ha-ha support for Donald Trump. His disgust embodied. My hope is this one. Can his crazy victory trigger a certain process of political renewal without risking too much of new authoritarian rule? I made a risky decision. I can well be convinced that I am wrong. But to conclude, so uh, my message to you would be to really conclude uh, this one. 
Trumps victory may create a new political situation with chances for organized more radical left. So if you love America, as I do, now is the time for the hard work of love, for becoming engaged in the long process of the formation of a radical political left in the United States. Or to quote Mao Zedong again, this would be my formula of your situation now. There is a great disorder under heaven, so the situation is excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Slavoj. You are like my British friends. They can praise you, but in such a way that you can see the mortifying dimension. You are kind to people in a way, cutting me with a knife. Okay, this just Listen, modest. do you think you're projecting? I like never... I said, thank you. You see, didn't she say now thank you in a very ungrateful way? <laughs> in a very Nietzschean way. Mm. Okay, um, so fuck you very much. And um, we do have time if, if you want to ask a question or so. I will just toss out one thing, which is I would put on our reading list if we had six more weeks to discuss, um, maybe Lyotard, who uh, would, would um, throw into question this emancipatory um, jubilation that... Just the oh, yeah, sense, generally, yeah, yeah, the sense that um, that some renewal, this whole tropology of renewal, of emancipating, of organizing, and so even though you presented it very, very carefully, and I appreciate mm-hmm. so much of what, as you say, about your enemies, I appreciate them otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, if there isn't still the kind of boost and pump of an emancipatory fiction. Uh, and maybe we have gone too far. This time we went too far. And what would that mean philosophically and in, in terms of a certain kind of lexicon of reflection that I urge upon all of us, which is what it means to have gone too far? We or Trump? Or we or, uh, all of us. Uh-huh. It's just too far. We went too far. There's no retraction possible, hypothetically. Yeah. Uh, there's no um, beating okay, but a path or finding then? a path. Go back? Or how no, do we get I'm, out of this shit? That, that would be my question rather yeah. than to... Um, we, needed, we needed you very much. And we needed a, um, a sense of that narrow path... <laughs> That wasn't happening last night. Um, to some sense of futurity, and something happened—an event happened in in your talk to us. I think we're very grateful. We needed this very much. I if I can't say we very in a stable way. I'm just rhetorically um, trying to shut myself down very quickly. Uh, but um, at the same time, is it? since you would understand this 
so well, just a sugar high <laughs> or um, a false high to revert, though, though we may have needed it, um, or it might be what Nietzsche would call an enabling fiction, to think that there could be an emancipatory other side or negotiation with something that just went too far. This is just a question, and I'm opening the um, discussion to you. If you have questions, you don't have to answer. Uh, this, this well, would can be... I just reply in a very friendly way, very briefly to you? Sure. I friendly see your good. problem. I just would have insisted. I was thinking a lot about it. But my first problem here is this one. When I speak about emancipation, please forget about the 20th century. I'm not dreaming about a new uh, proletarian right. revolution or communist party or whatever, although I remain very radical. What do I mean by this? Listen, we live in a very paradoxical situation where, on the one hand, there is an incredible popular rage exploding all around even the developed world here in Europe and so on. But there is again and again an impossibility to translate this rage into even a minimally organized political program and so on uh, and so on. And that's for me a mega tragedy. I'm sorry if some of you know this metaphor of mine, but I like it so much that I repeat it all the time. Did you see the movie V for Vendetta? You know how it ends up. People win in the United Kingdom and they penetrate the parliament. People are in power. Okay. I am, sorry for repeating this old tasteless remark of mine, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery, and it's safe to say because she is already dead, but that's another point. <laughs> I'm ready to sell, to see a movie which would be called V for Vendetta Part 2. I was so interested, but what happens then the next day? What do the revolutionaries do? How do they reorganize the government or whatever, and so on and so on? I find this so, such a tragic Deadlock. That's why I think that, for example, what Syriza did in Greece, you know, first you have this heroic referendum, no to European Union. One or two days later, they had to capitulate. I totally disagree with those who simply cry betrayal, like uh, Tariq Ali. He tried betrayal and then he flew back to London to his five million pounds uh, flat which is now, that's how we know how much is it worth selling on the market and so on. But what I want to say is this, that... Uh, no, okay, if all this fails, we can say, okay, why don't we call it a day and become, I use this term ironically, leftist Fukuyamaists, like, you know. We basically accept Fukuyama. We cannot get uh, 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 the liberal democratic capitalism is the only feasible way. We just could make it a little bit better up and down and so on and so on. Uh, okay, I don't think this works because I think we are approaching so many problems, antagonisms, which it's clear to me it will not be possible to solve them even to contain them within the existing world order. There is a problem of ecology, where large international cooperation will be possible. And here you have another example of ideology. How 
you are interpolated as ideological subjects. When you ask radical questions, how to change, restructure our industry, the answer you get is, ah, but why do you just criticize? Why, what did you do? Did you recycle all your uh, Coke cans? Did you put all the newspapers aside and so on and so on? It's a wonderful mechanism which makes you individually guilty and at the same time it offers you an easy way out. You know, you do that stupid, stupid recycling and you can go on living as usual. But more, I will not get lost, I'm sorry. Uh, so first we have the problem of ecology where I think mega large international cooperation will be needed. Then, although they are very naive, but different authors like uh, uh, Paul Mason, uh, uh, like Jeremiah Rifkin and others, even Elon Musk, the Tesla guy, now accepts it that obviously capitalism, the way we know it, is reaching its limit in so-called intellectual property and so on and so on. What will happen? How will we restructure it and so on? Not to mention all other problems. So I am saying that, and maybe we are lost, I don't see any automatic rise of some Marxist new working class subjectivity. I am just saying, if things go on the way they are going on, what will happen? Well, Hollywood knows it, as always. You know, all these dystopic movies, Hunger Game, Elysium, and so on. We are approaching uh, 20%, 80%. It's not just one, 99%, 20%, 80%. Society. That's why, with all naivety, I cling to this notion of emancipation and so on. Because I don't believe in these micropolitical gestures of resistance and so on and so on. I am saying if something more radical will not happen, and I'm a pessimist openly, probably it will not happen, then we are not maybe totally lost, but but maybe even totally lost. I think that there is even a growing chance of new world war. And paradoxically, I think, I wonder if you agree here that Hillary is more of a cold warrior than Donald Trump. I would be much more, I am, would have been much more afraid of her as a president. You know why I'm afraid of it? I don't think it's a good parallel of today's situation with the 30s Nazism. It's, I think, more with... World War I. Decades before, everybody knew World War is approaching. Everybody was getting ready of him the way they do it today. I read in newspapers, you know what's already happening in Russia. They already have mass millions participating, uh, mass training for how to react in the case of uh, nuclear war and so on and so on. But at the same time, we don't take it really seriously. We know it but we don't really believe in it, and that's why it can happen. It was exactly as in World War I, where everybody was getting ready for the war, but nobody believed in your guts. It's the same as with, and that's why it exploded. It's the same I claim with ecological catastrophe. We all know global warming and that bullshit, but I don't think we really believe in it. Like, the things can really change. That's why it will happen. And, uh, you know... Here, for me, there is a problem. I mean, uh, like, uh, what is the option? Maybe nothing. I'm ready to accept this. I'm just saying that we are gradually approaching a catastrophe. 
very so it's not so much I'll put it like this. I'm not saying that let's drop emancipation. The the universality is rather the universality of a catastrophe. And I mean it in a very empirical way, not in some misty pseudo-Heideggerian way, we will not even be noticing it, but our work will be over. I'm talking about very concrete catastrophes, hunger, world war, total chaos, and so on and so on. Sorry, I was too long. I'm sorry. Not at all. Uh, we, we have time. No Four minutes. Time. Yeah, okay. because he set the clock. No, you did. Bitch. Okay, but it's another. Ah, you see the working class. I'm the working class. Now, sorry? I, I'm the working class here. Ah, you learned the trick of the communists in power. Even the highest <laughs> nomenclatura, Stalin always said, <laughs> I'm the real working class here. <laughs> okay, sorry, let's go on. Yeah. But please, now we just debated, allow us to shamelessly escape with the illusion that there is democracy. Will somebody save democracy by asking at least one question, please? We, we have... Um, oh, we have someone, please. I was wondering, in, in the light of what you said today, what do you think about Frederick Jameson's thesis on uh, dual power and American utopia, of dual power of universal army, and if you think that this is an, still an interesting thesis? Thanks. Ah, thanks very much. Well... Uh, it's a very fundamental question, and to answer it properly, I could simply tell you, um, read my text in that volume, because I edited the volume. I'm just saying that what I like about Jameson's text, it's not so much all the details. I think that what he wants is an impossible dream. He wants an army which was just function as army bureaucracy without preparing for a real war. This does... It's, this, but I asked him already, why then the army? Why not some mega state bureaucracy or whatever? Why call it the army? It's pro but what I like in his work is this radical rethinking of communist or socialist project. You know, first, it's no longer the dream of uh, all antagonisms will be overcome, uh, sex will be work and work will be sex and no envy and so on. Like, I find that idea absolutely fascinating that the basic problem, if we can even imagine, of a post-class communist society will be what you mentioned, resentment, jealousy and all that. That this will explode there. And you know, if you read the text, you obviously did, what is Fred's, Jameson's solution? It is that to regulate this, state or society should organize mega psychoanalytic institutes where individuals will be cured of resentment and jealousy and so on. I mean, I love the idea, but more as a, as a paradox. But again, what I like is this open admission that we will not get rid of basic antagonisms, even of a certain form of authority, whatever you want, and so on and so on. I like this idea, you know, which is one point which Fred Jameson, maybe he is, but I don't think he is ready to leave behind. It's my favorite point, and I learned it from a good friend of mine who wrote a book on the echoes of Haiti in literature of the Haiti Revolution, Jeremiah Glick, it's this idea of revolutionary tragedy, 
not just in the sense of things may go wrong and so on, but that what Hegel describes as a tragic dimension. You want to do something, freedom and so on, things necessarily go wrong and so on, that it holds also for what I naively call process of emancipation. Here, we have to admit that we don't know where we are moving, that things will have to be radically redefined. It's not only that we have different paths towards socialism and so on, but in the process of building socialism, what socialism means up to its most basic constituents will have to be uh, radically redefined. So I'm even much more, in a way, pessimist than Fred Jameson, but I can only tell you that this change is sensible everywhere. For example, I haven't yet read their text, but I know that now, through my private grapevine spying service, that uh, Hart and Negri are now radically rethinking their position and then they no longer play this like ignore state power, multitude, reorganize locally. No, they said we also need not only multitude, verticality, strong central power, authority, taking power, and so on. Uh, that's for me. That's the left, we are not yet, but it needs this very radical rethinking. For me, uh, uh, we have really to, to accept th that also in the so-called process of emancipation, the tragic dimension, precisely in this sense, you do something with best intentions, you totally screw it up, and then in this process, the very goal you are pursuing changes and so on and so on have to be, has to be accepted. I really think that I'm a pessimist. We don't know where we stand. We, we have all these futurist books that I like to read, like, again, Jeremiah Rifkin, or now the bestseller by, how is the guy called, uh, Yuval Harari, Homo Deus, this description of a society that is emerging where our lives will be controlled in the, by gigantic digital machinery, biogenetically, and so on and so on, and what will happen with our freedom and so on. These are all such fascinating topics, and we don't yet have even the proper theoretical apparatus to know where they lead. Let's give up one more so that... All right. Uh, is there, I'm so sorry. You said one more? Did uh, you say... Or do you say that's it? One more and then... Okay, because the with the one and the two and the plus... Um, let me now, see. Now, let's move from moderate right to radical left. Or <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Or it's from moderate left to radical right. I was never good in locating. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Since I've arrived to the U.S., I've been fascinated with the racial uh, divide and the, ra the institutional racism that is here in the U.S., what do you mean by institutional? The, the shooting against people and the criminalization and the jailing of 1.5 million black people, like uh, we outside of the U.S. refer to African-Americans. But uh, which is the part that is going to play uh, this institutional racism and black people and people of color 
in the new radicalization of the left or the possible radicalization of the left in the near future and the pro and the political process that maybe will be triggered. I cannot give you a precise answer. My only point, which makes me even more unpopular, is that uh, my hero is here again. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself. My hero is here, uh, uh, Malcolm X, because he precisely opted for universalist version. You know what he did with X. It's not Haley and that Hollywood kitsch uh, uh, return to roots and so on. His genius was to see in the most, how in the most tragic dimension of the black experience, they X, they lack uh, family tradition, ethnic roots. But his idea was, what if this opens up a possibility for a new community, even more universalist than European universalism, and so on and so on. So uh, uh, all this idea of happy coalition between, or coordination between universal economic struggle and concrete identities, identity politics in whatever sense, it will not work. I'm a pessimist there. There should be radical changes on both levels. For example, many of my friends, now that we have not, it's unfair to say problems with refugees in Europe because we are a problem for them also, you know, but there are problems. Some people propose simple formulas like uh, we should distinguish between our universal struggle and the right of every group to to maintain their specific way of life. That's for me the worst idealism. The point is that precisely you cannot distinguish them because universal dimension, it's not that I have my way of life and apart from it, I participate in some universality. Universality must be inscribed in whatever way in your particular way of life. For example, and that's why you get all these problems, for example, with women's rights, you try to regulate with, in Europe with immigrants women's rights and they complain and they are quite justified to complain that this means destroying their way of life. So what will you do? There is no easy way out. You have sometimes to make a choice. You take seriously women's rights, like when a woman protests, I don't want to be controlled by my family and forced uh, marriage and so on. But then when you protect the woman, these communities will claim in a way, in a totally true way, they are right, that you are destroying our way of life. And also in my own country, for this I was so much attacked, proclaimed a neo-fascist or what, when I drew attention to the fact that, for example, for Roma, what in racist way we called once gypsies, for them arranged marriages are the very core of their communal life. You take away from them this, they disappear in two generations, the latest. So what will you do here? Whose side will it take? In Slovenia, we had a serious problem with this because years ago, a young girl escaped. She didn't want to be, when she was 12 years old, married. And then, of course, all feminists, they were right, supported her. But then the Roma community said, Sorry, you are brutally intervening in our way of life. Now, I'm not simply saying that I'm defending European universalism against uh, others' uh, particular way of life. I 
am well aware of these dialectics of how European universalism is itself partial and so on and so on. What I'm just trying to do is to complicate things. Tolerance doesn't help here. What do you tolerate? You tolerate, you don't tolerate. Like, if you say we should tolerate the way of life of other communities. Okay, but where do you draw the line if their way of life violates what we consider rights of gay people, of uh, women, and so on and so on? Where do you draw the line? There is... I'm not so much, it's not so much that I offer an easy way out. I'm just, the first step towards a solution is maybe to admit it that it's a difficult problem. If both sides admit that it's a problem, maybe, maybe something can be done. But on the other hand, of course, I reject this uh, notion of traditional groups. We want our way of life and so on and so on. But also, of course, this enlightened Western arrogance and so on and so on. I mean, uh, it's interesting how today often those very marginal communist groups uh, want to uh, criticize uh, Eurocentrism and want to protect all those way of, uh, particular ways of life. But all those to whom they refer... For example, in Mao's China, no, they were, Maoists were, when they were in power, pretty brutally destroying all traditional ways of life and so on and so on. And I will tell you something else. Things get even more complicated here. Take something like ISIS or Daesh or whatever. There is, I think, absolutely nothing traditional about it. Okay, they fake to have some ideas, whatever, from old Koran, but they are in their mode of organization an ultra, I would say even postmodern, extremely dynamic group, and it's also clear from the way they function that they are a combination of a religious community and a mafia family laundering money, selling artifacts, drugs, oil, or whatever. It's, uh, I think that they are part and package of our world. So what is even traditional today and so on? Where do you draw all these lines? Again, I don't see any simple solutions here. Oh, sorry, maybe another one. If, are you raising your hands or scratching yourself, you lady who is... Uh, sorry, you see whom I mean? No, sorry, I was wrong. You were hallucinating. I was if, if we were to, um, con to pursue your question further and we had the time, perhaps we would want to read together Lacan's uh, TV text where he writes yeah. about the jouissance of the other and how racism is precisely, and since Donald Trump is such a TV mm. Um, an effect of TV, television, um, we would want to, to consider uh, what Lacan says about imagining through the circuitry of, of television um, the, the, the jouissance of the other and That's how the other is getting it all. Yeah. Are you interrupting me? Absolutely. You didn't have enough time? Yeah. No, what I wanted to say is yeah, that I ahead. here sincerely fully agree with you because okay. this is no, no, this is what I ah. All of a sudden now yeah, we have now time. I'm interested. No, yeah, yeah. Now we have all that, the that, time. That, this is where this is what I wanted to arrive at with those racial enjoyments and so on and right. so on. For me, well, literally, enjoyment in the sense of enjoying your specific way of life 
it's absolutely fundamental. That's where racism is embedded in our daily lives. Like I, that's so typical in Europe and even here, you know, where people, liberals, who can be very sincerely anti-racist, but almost all of them that I know, but then they find some tiny feature of the, like, the traditional thing here in States, many of my friends say, I like blacks, it's horrible what we did to them, but they talk too loudly, their music is too loud or whatever, you know. Or in France, it's so traditional to say Arabs, it's horrible what we are doing with them. But just when I pass a Moroccan restaurant, it's so much garlic or whatever. It's, you know, this, okay, this is a ridiculous example. But what I mean is that it's easy to be anti-racism at the abstract level of, you know, oh, we are all equal and so on and so on. The true conflict is at the level of this particular ways of life. And I agree with you, this is why in some other texts, Lacan, all the honor goes to him. Already in mid-70s, he predicted uh, the, the rise of new forms of racism as absolutely an inherent part of globalization of world capital. Yeah. So I know we're all beginning our, our sense of loss and horror. I hope we contributed to your sense of loss and horror and made it stick. We're here to... Um, Suffer together and continue to no, think. No, I don't want to suffer. I want to enjoy my loss. <laughs> That's true. No, no, no. Sorry. To finish, just this, please. Uh, that's for me the lesson of Christianity. In Christianity, you know, God gives us our freedom. How? You experience yourself as abandoned by God. Let's say. I'm alone. I do and, feel this right now. No, uh, uh, no, no, I will not abandon you. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I want to say is uh, uh, we feel abandoned and that the Christian solution is not to say don't worry too much, the guy up there, God, still secretly will save you. No, the message of Christianity is you feel alone, all responsibility is on you. You see, this is the freedom that God is giving you, you know. It's a very paradoxical solution where the problem becomes its own solution, as it were. Or the story. good message of Christianity, as Jean-Luc Nancy says, is that the end is near. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Anna.